Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Uh, this morning, uh, we are privileged to have uh, Craig Cooper with us, Craig and, and Laura, his wife. Craig was leading worship this morning. We were talking on, on together, I think it was Friday, and Craig's like, hey, is, you guys got anyone to lead worship this week? I'm like, I think we do. He's like, well, I'm available to do that if you want. So Tim was supposed to lead worship today. Tim said, hey, no problem. If Craig wants to lead, I'll, you know, I can... I can still come and play. And so Craig jumped right in. He's actually led worship today. Now he's going to preach. So that's a full morning for him. And uh, Craig was actually in town this weekend to give a parenting class for us here at Mercy Hill. And it was just a phenomenal time together that we had learning about God's uh, perfect plan for families in our, our roles as parents with the children. And, and those who, who came were so blessed by this, the time that we had together in God's word. And so, um, you know, before Craig came up here, he was, uh, he, was a, he was an acquaintance. We knew each other, but um, I feel like he's leaving as a dear friend. And uh, he is currently a pastor at a, a church plant in Nashville, Tennessee. So they are, they are actually next week celebrating their one-year anniversary. And so uh, he was, before then, he was a pastor at a Cornerstone Church in Knoxville, Tennessee for a number of years and uh, now planting out with uh, a church in, in Nashville, Tennessee. So um, let's just welcome Craig as he comes up. Wow. Well, I've got to tell you, um, what a great church this is. Mercy Hill Church. What an incredible church. You guys, um, the Lord is with you. It is so evident. And it, it has been an absolute privilege and joy for us to be here this weekend. Um, the, the parenting class that we did, it was, it was so wonderful to interact um, with the parents in this church and who, who love their kids, love Christ, and want to see Christ formed in their kids. And it was just such, such a, a privilege um, to have that opportunity. Spending time with Johnny and Michelle uh, for us was a huge highlight. Um, we ha- it was a blast, but we enjoyed some very deep uh, fellowship, and I really am grateful for that. Um, and then reconnecting with so many people who've come through Knoxville, and uh, it just is, um, it's, a, it's a real joy to be here, a real joy to be here. Um, thank you. <laughs> Uh, Johnny mentioned that we, we are celebrating our one-year anniversary on October 12th is, is when we planted, and you guys are celebrating your five-year anniversary on October 12th, which is really cool. So for us um, to, to really draw them out and to hear about the Lord's grace and His provision, and then to walk in this building after having heard about it, and to hear how the Lord provided this place for you, this place is awesome. <laughs> I mean, it, it is incredible. And uh, what, what a gift. So uh, you all are blessed. You're blessed, and we're blessed to, uh, to be with you. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. This morning... The title of the message this morning is A Merciful Community, and uh, how fitting 
that you all are coming up on five years together and we can look at God's word and, and see that Jesus is building a merciful community. And I love the name of your church. I've said that to John many times. I love the name of your church, Mercy Hill Church. May God bring so many people in here to receive his mercy. Right? All right, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 9 through 13, but before I do, I want to... I want to just begin by sharing a, uh, a story with you that is reportedly a true account, um, you know, that was recorded in the police log of Sarasota, Florida. An elderly lady completed her shopping and upon returning to her car, found four males in the act of leaving with her vehicle. She dropped her shopping bags, drew a handgun, proceeded to scream at the top of her lungs, I have a gun! And I know how to use it. Get out of the car. The four men didn't wait for a second threat. They immediately got out and ran like mad. The lady, somewhat shaken, then proceeded to load her shopping bags into the back of the car and got into the driver's seat. She was so shaken that she could not get the key in the ignition. She tried and she tried. And then she realized why. It was for the same reason that she had wondered why there was a football, a Frisbee, and two 12-packs of beer in the front seat. A few minutes later, she found her own car parked four or five spaces further down. She loaded her bags into the car and drove to the police station to report her mistake. The sergeant, to whom she told the story, could not restrain his laughter. He pointed to the other end of the counter where four pale men were reporting a carjacking by a mad elderly woman described as white, less than five feet tall, glasses, curly white hair, and carrying a very large handgun. The report says uh, no charges were filed. What a lady! Huh? What a woman. I mean, that's who you want babysitting your kids. (laughs) She was not messing around, right? Well, that, that's clearly a, a case of mistaken identity, right? Mistaken identity, mistaken behavior. Uh, the car that the elderly lady, you know, thought was her own and was being stolen actually belonged to someone else. There was no crime in those four pale men's actions uh, that she confronted. No need for her to pull her gun. The point... Uh, this morning is that we're going we're gonna to look at a, another account of mistaken identity and behavior. And this account actually involves Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And the religious leaders were charging Jesus with wrongdoing. They're charging Jesus with misconduct. Um, it's at a dinner party. That's where the setting takes place. It's hosted by Matthew, who is actually the author of this gospel. And so it's a wonderful account for us to read, you know, about what's taking place and from Matthew's perspective, who is the author of this gospel. So the religious leaders were mistaken about who Jesus is, uh, why he came, and what type of community he was building. But we'll see 
here in the passage that there is absolutely no misconduct in Jesus' actions. There's no mistake at all in his behavior. This is very deliberate. And in fact, his, his conduct and his teaching throughout the Gospels, throughout his life, and, and in this passage, uh, really reveal to us who Jesus is and why he came. And, I, and I'm here to tell you, Mercy Hill Church, it, it, there is so much hope in these verses. So let's read them together. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, help us as we look at this passage. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things in your word and enliven our souls for your glory. In Jesus' name. What we see in this text is one simple truth. The community that Jesus is building is a merciful community. The community that Jesus builds is a merciful community. We're going to look at the the text under three headings. First, who Jesus is. Second, why Jesus came. And then finally, what this means for Mercy Hill Church as you approach five years uh, together. Glory to God for that. Point one, who Jesus is. Look at verse 11 and 12. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus is referring to himself in a particular way in this passage. He's likening himself to a physician. Now, if you think of a physician, a physician physician has to enter into the world of the sick in order to heal anyone, right? It would be absolutely absurd for a doctor to go through all the training and the education and the preparation for his practice and then to do all of that only to stay away from everyone who could ever benefit from his care, right? The Pharisees are, in this passage, they're questioning Jesus' wisdom. They're questioning his credentials. They're questioning his character because he's eating with people who are not considered to be good company. 
And Jesus responds to that. And he tells them, it's, he's not there with them as a companion in evil, as they were assuming, but as a physician to heal. And he must get close enough to the sick in order to heal them. Right? Jesus is revealing himself in this passage as the great physician. He is the great physician. And, and he heals today. And when we pray and ask God for mercy, look, he can do anything. And we learn in this gospel that there is no sickness, there is no suffering that Jesus cannot heal. Now, what we're going to do right now, let's zoom out a little bit, at, you know, almost as if you were looking at Google Maps on your iPhone or your Droid. Um, hopefully you have an iPhone. <laughs> and and we're, we're going we're gonna to just zoom out and, um, and note the context of this particular passage that we're looking at because I think it's going to help us to see what the great physician, who the great physician is and what he does. So first, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Jesus cleanses a leper. He touches a leper. No one would ever touch a leper. He did not have to touch the leper. He could have just spoken healing. He did that all through the Gospels. That was not necessary, but it was a great act of mercy and love and compassion. Can you imagine the testimony of this leper as he shares, and then he came to me, and then I saw him. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 came, I came to him, and I said, Lord, if you will, I know you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand. And he touched me. He touched me. And he said, I will be clean. And immediately, he was cleansed. See, Jesus is not defiled in any way by the man's leprosy. Instead, when he encounters leprosy, the leper's healed instantly. And then you look on chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, and we see that he heals the paralyzed servant of a centurion. Now, he does that simply by speaking. And he commends the man's faith. And you can read this and study these passages because they are remarkable. And then he moves on, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. There is no sickness that's too small, you know, for you to pray and ask God for mercy. For, and, he, and, he, and he heals her of the fever, and immediately she begins to serve. And then he gets into a boat, chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, with his disciples, and this great tempest arises, right? And the boat is being swamped by the waves, and the disciples are going crazy, and they are saying, Lord, don't you care? He was asleep. And then he gets up and he says, Oh, oh you little faith, why do you doubt? And then 
he, he stands up and he speaks to the winds and the waves. And he says, be still. And immediately, the tempest is still. The waves stop. The wind stops. And now the disciples are no longer afraid of the winds and the waves. They have fear in their hearts as they say, verse 27, they were marveling to say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this? Who is this man? And then chapter 8, verses 22 through 34, he heals two demon-possessed men who are identifying him as the Son of God. And, and he casts the demons out of them into a herd of pigs and they rush down into a steep bank and they're drowned into the sea. And then chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, he, he forgives the sins of a paralytic. He says, take heart, my sons, your sin, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And, and everybody says, who, who, only God can do that. Exactly. Jesus is God. And then to show that he has authority on earth to forgive sins, he tells the paralytic, rise and walk. And the man rose and walked, forgiven and healed. That's the great physician. So even in that little context that we see there, we see his power over suffering. We see his power over sickness. We see his power over nature. We see his power over Satan. And we see his power over sin. Jesus is all-powerful. And he, he says he's the great physician. Wow. Who is this man? This is no ordinary man. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He is the Son of God, Holy God, perfect man, sinless Savior. The great physician who came to heal and save us. And then you zoom back out even into another gospel, Luke chapter 4. And I love this this is one of my favorite verses in the scriptures, one of my favorite texts, is when he came to Nazareth, I'll read it to you, where he had been brought up, and this is Luke chapter 4, and as, he, as was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So, they, they hand him Isaiah. <laughs> and he unrolls the scroll, and he finds the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And every eye is fixed on him. He's in a seated position. He's there to teach. The eyes of all in synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. What he's saying is, I'm the one who Isaiah was writing about. I'm the one whom the Old Testament prophets foretold. I am the promised Messiah. I'm the Christ. 
I'm the Son of God. I'm God in the flesh. I'm here to heal. I'm here to save. Wow. Now, let's zoom back down, you know, into our passage. Let's consider what's happening here. This was a defining moment for Matthew. Matthew lived and worked in Capernaum where Jesus had based his ministry. So there's no doubt that Matthew, the tax collector, had actually heard Jesus teach at some point. He had heard the, the work of the works that he'd done. He more than likely had personally witnessed some of them. So when Jesus passes by Matthew at the tax collector's booth and he says these two incredibly merciful, compelling words... Follow me. Matthew receives it as mercy. And he leaves everything and he follows Jesus. Now, Matthew would have been absolutely amazed that Jesus would have called him. No one else was calling him, at least none of the other religious leaders. No one else was looking to Matthew. In, 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 in verse 9, it says Matthew is a tax collector. Tax collectors worked for Rome. Uh, they were viewed as the enemy. Uh, they're generally held as traitors. Um, their work basically involved cooperating with the Romans who were occupying Palestine to collect a certain amount of taxes for Rome, but whatever else they collected was their commission. And you wouldn't know the difference, but they were... They, they were known for their extortion. They were known for their corruption. It was very common. They were taking much more you know, than, than the Romans actually demanded. And they were becoming rich off their own greed after the poverty of other people. And so they were, they were generally very wealthy, um, but there would have been few honest men in that business. And Matthew probably was not one of the honest men. They had very bad reputations in society. Jesus calls Matthew. That's what it says. As Jesus passed on from there, verse 9, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me to Matthew. That would have been absolutely shocking to uh, the religious leaders of the day. But this is why Jesus came. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this. This is a, a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why He came. So to the charge of why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is in essence communicating, I came here to save them. I came here to heal them. Would you expect a physician to spend all his time with those who say they're healthy or to minister to the needs of the sick? I came for the sick. That's why I called Matthew. That's why I eat with tax collectors and sinners. It's why I'm here. Jesus is the great physician. He's the Savior, and He comes with mercy and healing in His hands, and He's building a merciful community of redeemed sinners who will sing the glories of His great name. And that takes us to our second point, which is why Jesus came. Look at verse 13. Go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I can distinctly remember a warm, sunny day when I was about 17 years old. I was living in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was working as a, uh, a bag boy for a red food store, a, a, a little grocery store there. And anybody else work as bag boy before? Yes, my people. And I was hustling because for some reason at that particular grocery store, and, and it's not like this anymore, I, I haven't found a single grocery store that does this now, but for some reason at that particular grocery store, you know, when you took the groceries out for somebody and you loaded them in the bag, they would give you a tip. You know, um, often it was a dollar, um, sometimes it was two, and wonder of wonders, uh, you may have somebody who gives you three or a five. Um, you know, if, if they really enjoyed their experience. And I was, I was making more money in the tips than I was, you know, in, in my job. And I can remember uh, this one lady who I was interacting with, and I'm hustling, I'm going back and forth, and at one point she says to me, um, you're, you're such a kind young man, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I said, sure. And I thought, man, I might get a big tip here. And... Uh, I got a big tip. It wasn't what I expected. But she says, that cross around your neck, I had a wooden cross that I wore on a rope chain around my neck. She said, that cross around your neck. And I said, yeah. She said, is that decoration or is that real to you? And I remember thinking, I don't know. And I paused and I said, a little bit of both. And she gave me a tip and I hustled back in and, but then I slowed my pace down and I could not get that question out of my head. I was 17 years old at the time and if you had asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said yes. If you had asked me if, you know, you thought you would go to heaven when you died. I, w- I would have said yes, but in my heart I would have thought, man, I hope so. You know, and I just kept having this cranking in my head, that cross around your neck, is it decoration or is it real? And through a series of events, and the Lord uh, in His kindness just brought me to a place where I was broken and uh, I was invited to a meeting one night where I heard the best news in the whole world, John chapter 3. <laughs> and it said, you must, be, you must be born again. And I be- began to think in my head, as the gentleman was speaking of, here's what won't make you a Christian. He said, going to church every, sa- every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, that won't make you a Christian. You know, being baptized, which I had been baptized when I was 17 because I was in a relationship and I wanted, you know, I just thought this is what I've got to do to, to uh, get my sins washed away, which is not the gospel. Um, being, you can be baptized to, you know, fish by their first names and that won't make you a Christian, he said. <laughs> you know, you can be a leader in the youth group. That's not going to make you a Christian. You can have a Bible you know, you can have read some of it 
That's not going to make you a Christian. He went through all these things that I was trusting in, and it was almost like somebody just kicked a chair out from underneath me because if you had asked me, why are you a Christian, I would have said, because I go to church, because I I have read some of my Bible, because I've been baptized. What's the emphasis on all of that? I. And I realized that moment I was trusting in my own righteousness, which I didn't have any. The cross that was around my neck was completely decoration. And in a moment of desperation, as I heard that being proclaimed, and then he pointed me through the scriptures, the man who's preaching to John chapter 3, that to the cross, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him can be forgiven. That the point of the cross is that God took his righteous wrath for our sin and he laid it on Jesus. And Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so that whoever looks to him and believes and trusts in the Savior will be absolutely, completely, forever forgiven. Not based on anything that you have or haven't done, but based on everything that Jesus did for you. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death in our place. That he rose from the grave, defeating death and Satan and sin, and securing eternal life for everyone who looks to the Savior. Look to Jesus. Look to Him. The ends of the earth and you'll be saved. Is that it? Look. Yes. Look. Trust. Faith. Turn from looking to all of your own righteousness and turn completely to Him. You know what? You'll be forgiven. You'll have eternal life. And that may be you. I don't know. This morning, if you maybe you're a, a teenager Maybe you're a, a young adult, or maybe you, you're coming from a religious background. And I just want to encourage you that, you know, you can never make yourself good enough. You, you, you can't. Um, nothing you do will ever satisfy a holy God. And the just demands of His holy law that you have broken. Um... In many ways, you're in a desperate condition. You can't just religious it, it up. You can't just, you know, try to clean yourself up. But the amazing thing is, that's why the great physician came. That's why he came, because he came and he lived a perfect life. He did it all right. He never once sinned. He never disobeyed his parents. He never lied. He never cheated, he never stole, he never lusted. You know, that's amazing. Jesus had people, he, he had, he had uh, women wipe his feet with their, te- with, with their tears. He related to everyone with perfect holiness, with no impure thought or motive or deed or anything. And at the end of it, at the end of his life, you know what? We killed him! 
Because we, we're like the religious leaders here. We're like, what's your problem, Jesus? And we crucified him. We hung him on a cross. We sped on him. We all did that by our sins and our rebellion. But you know what? He freely laid his life down. And he knew exactly what you've done. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But he knew what he was doing. The cross is not decoration. The cross is a declaration of the love of God for sinners. You can be forgiven whatever you've done. Trust in Jesus. Just say, Lord, my life is yours. Whatever it means, my life is yours. And he'll take you and he'll forever change you. In verse 13 here it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy. So the Pharisees, you know, mentioned in verse 11, they're a group of Jews. They're marked by strict adherence to the law and extra biblical traditions. They focus on the outward, the ritual, the ceremonial aspects of God's law. In essence, they focused on what Jesus is saying here, sacrifices. So he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The religion of doing all of these things to try to ease your own conscience or try to make you feel like you've, you're right with God on, on the basis of your own works, their observance of the law. So they had become harsh. They had become judgmental. They had become disparaging of others. They looked down on others. Uh, they were self-righteous. And it was, it was, it was all decoration. It wasn't real. And there's so much of that in, in, in our culture, so much religion. There's so much uh, ceremonial things. There's so much sacri- sacrifices, like Jesus is saying. And look, I tell you, when you walk into a group like this, it's very different because you encounter mercy. And when people can open up and be free and confess, it, even as, as several shared, I've struggled this week or I've struggled the past three weeks. I'm not doing well. You know what? A merciful community. This is a merciful community because no one would do that if you didn't accept them with mercy already. But <laughs> in a merciful community where it's safe, we can be ourselves, we can open up, we can go to Christ, we can receive His grace, and we can actually change and grow. Isn't that amazing? And you know what? When people walk in here, it doesn't matter what they're dressed like. It doesn't matter if they're, what, what they look like, what their hair looks like. It doesn't matter what they're wearing. It doesn't matter what, what, what's on their skin. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. It doesn't matter their language or their nationality. It doesn't matter about any of that. What matters is they were created in the image of God. They have dignity in the image of God. And they need Him. And... We have the best news in the world that Christ died for, yes, even their sins. Isn't that amazing? And we share that and we see lives changed for His glory. I was struck in this passage studying at how 
you know, the, the Pharisees were even critiquing Jesus. You know, that's what happens in a self, self-righteous community. You know, even if, if the Savior himself, you know, walks in, we criticize him um, if we're self-righteous. But if, if we are full of mercy and love and grace, boy, that changes everything. We're more like Jesus, which is what we want to look at here um, so Jesus makes it clear that he didn't come for those who consider themselves worthy <laughs> or healthy. He came for those who are in desperate need. It was for the helpless. It was for the hopeless. It was for the weak and the, and the wandering and the battered and the bruised and the broken and the burdened and the desolate and the discouraged and the dismayed and the weary and the heavy laden and the hungry and the thirsty and the fainting and the far off that he came to heal, and to save. Jesus came to those whom conservative society society would rather hold at arm's length. He came for the undesirables because he desired mercy and not sacrifice because he's a friend of sinners. Jesus goes to the most unlikeliest of places to call the most unlikely of people because he desires to show mercy to them. That's amazing grace. That's incredible mercy. And he offers salvation to sinners apart from their works. Um, That's the heart of the gospel. Good news is for the sick. It's for the sinful. It's for the ungodly. It's for the one who's not well. For the one who is not righteous. The gospel's for sinners, and it's like the song says, the only fitness that is required is that you see your need for him. And when we bring our endless need to his endless supply of grace, we, we do two things. We glorify him, his mercy, and then we receive grace for ourselves. It's so easy when you're around someone sick to want to protect yourself from that sickness, right? Move your chair away. I know my kids, when, when, when someone is sick in the home, somebody's coughing or sneezing, you know, you know they don't want to hold hands when we're praying for dinner. You know, they, they're moving away. You know? I mean, and they're holding their breath. They're pulling back. Um, that, and that's, that's, our, that's our tendency, all of ours, right? Give me the Purell, right? let me wash my hands of this. Let me get away. Isn't it amazing that Jesus, uh, like a skillful physician, he, he moves toward the sick, toward the needy. And that's what he's calling us to do in this passage as well. He's the great physician. And what people need to hear is, there's hope. There's hope. While you're, I love that passage in Ecclesiastes. While you're among the living, you have hope. If you're breathing, you have hope. It says even a, 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 a dead dog is better. Even a, a, a live dog is better than a dead lion. That's what it says. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. They despise dogs in that society. He says... You know, look, if you're among the living, you have hope. Isn't that great news? Um, So the type of community that Jesus wants to build 
at Redeeming Grace Church in Nashville, at Mercy Hill Church here, is a merciful community. It's a merciful community. So if, you've, if you're here this morning, maybe you were invited by a friend, um, a, a neighbor, a relative, and you feel lost. You know, you feel broken. You feel beaten up by the cares of the world. You know, maybe you're confused and disillusioned by your sin. Maybe you're distraught by life, you know, in this crazy world. Here's what I would say to you. You qualify for the mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus. Because that's why he came. There's good news for you. He's a great redeemer, powerful redeemer, with greater grace than all of our sins. That's awesome. So, point one, who is Jesus? Point two, why Jesus came. And then finally, and this will be brief, but what this means for Mercy Hill Church. Verse 13, the beginning of that verse is, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy Hill Church, God himself has positioned you to comfort the downcast, to bind up the wounded, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and the favor of the Lord for all who will trust in Jesus. You named yourself Mercy Hill Church. And God, do it. May this be a beacon of light, of hope and grace and mercy to everyone in this area so that the real Jesus becomes non-ignorable in this city and, and far beyond from this place. You know that what you're doing here is a great thing? It's a great thing. You're part of a, of a church that's about to celebrate five years old. And you are helping build it from the beginning. Lord willing, this will outlast our generation. Lord willing, this church will be a beacon of light for hope until Christ returns. You're part of something absolutely magnificent. It's glorious and it is stunning. And sometimes we can lose that, that, we can lose that vision, right? We can lose heart. That's why we need to hear Jesus say, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Here's what Matthew Henry says. He says, to promote the conversion of souls is the greatest act of mercy imaginable. You know, when you gather in here as a church and you sing like you did this morning, wow, by the way, what a responsive church you are. You love to sing. It is easy to lead you in worship. Um, What a privilege for that. And when you come in and you sing with all your heart to Jesus and people walk in here, you know what you're doing? 
And when you're out in your communities, your workplaces, you know, in your neighborhoods, at the gym, the coffee shops, all of that, and you're gathered, you are promoting the conversion of souls, Mercy Hill Church. And your part of the greatest act of mercy imaginable. Even by being a member of this church. Isn't that encouraging? That encourages me. Your life has meaning. You may not feel like it does. Your life has meaning. Maybe you're suffering. When people watch you suffer, and you suffer with hope and faith, and you take it to Christ, like we witnessed this morning, the world's watching. And they're thinking, no one else does that. What's up with you? What's your story? And you say, Christ. Wow. You promote the conversion of souls. What Mercy Hill Church needs to hear, what Redeeming Grace Church needs to hear, what every church needs to hear to embrace and to extend to others in this community is mercy. It's mercy. Everyone needs a safe place where they can come and be themselves and be honest about their struggles and their sins, where they can meet the real Jesus, the great physician, and be ensured that mercy will triumph over judgment. Richard Sibb says, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Wow. That's encouraging. And the Church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other, so all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. That great physician, as he had a quick eye and a healing tongue, so he had a gentle hand and a tender heart. Let's be like Jesus. Amen. I'm going to close with reading you one thing, and then we'll pray. This is from Elton Trueblood. And he spoke of the early church in this way. He says, It was the incendiary character of the early Christian fellowship, which was amazing to the contemporary Romans, and it was amazing precisely because there was nothing in their experience that was remotely similar to it. It's nothing like the church. Religion they had in vast quantities, but it, it was nothing like this. Much of the uniqueness of Christianity and its original emergence consisted of the fact that simple people could be amazingly powerful when they were members one of another. As everyone knows, it's almost impossible to create a fire with one log, even if it's a sound one, while several poor logs can make an excellent fire if they stay together as they burn. The miracle of the early church was that of poor sticks making a grand fire for Jesus. Now, I'm a poor stick. A very poor stick. But I can gather around other poor sticks and we can let the Lord light us on fire and we can watch what He does. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Mercy Hill Church. Lord, thank You Thank you for the Savior. Thank you that Jesus came not for the righteous, not for the healthy, 
but for the sinners and for the sick. Lord, I thank you for that because I am a sinner and I am weak. And I thank you, Lord, that you have promised to build your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, I pray for Johnny. Pray for the elders here. I pray for every member of this church that you would bless them with your grace, that you would protect them, that you would work in them what's pleasing in your sight, and that you would use them as they burn together. Lord, all the sticks coming together as they burn. Lord, make them burn so that the world sees the bonfire of your grace and people start coming to check it out. I pray for that, Lord. Bless this church. Lord, what we're asking for is just that more sinners would be forgiven. And more sick would be healed. And that you would be glorified. We will give you all the glory for it. Mighty Jesus. Amen. Amen.